Our guest speaker is Keith Farron. Uh, Keith and I met about a year and a half ago or so when he was traveling through this area. Keith actually spent his grade school years, first through sixth grade, here in Sinai First Covenant Church, attended Coronado uh, Elementary School. And um, Keith lives in Seattle. He has a wife and three children, 14, 12, and 8, two girls and a boy. Um, he has a great passion for God's word and in helping people uh, fall in love with God's word as well. So let's welcome Keith as he comes and speaks this morning. All right. Hi. It is good to be back here. Man, what a strange but cool thing to come and preach in the church that you terrorized for six years. So, you know, anybody part of this church from 75 to 81? Okay. So there, if you're in your late 40s, then you were with me in the terrorizing. If you're older than that, I apologize. So I was the kid going underneath the pews one at a time high during the sermon, you know, when Pastor Tolson was trying to preach and uh, or climbing the tree in my church clothes after church right outside that door. But um, but it is it is good to to be back here. I have great memories of being in Salina. I live in Seattle now, uh, so it was really confusing and awesome to see that bright light you have in the sky because we don't see that out in Seattle and uh and today, you know, my my passion is helping people fall in love with the word, helping people what I call move from should to want when it comes to the Bible, uh, because I spent a good chunk of my life having my thoughts about the Bible. The internal conversation I had in my head were marked much more by should than want. It wasn't, oh, man, I really want to read the Bible and, oh, I love the Bible and, oh, I can't wait to have a quiet time. It was much more, I probably should read the Bible more than I do. I probably should know it better after being around the church this long. I probably should memorize more verses or I probably should talk about it more. I probably should enjoy it more. There's this should conversation that I find dominates for most of us the conversation and was the case for me. For a long time. And what I would what I'd say is I can actually point back to a very specific night, April 18th of 1993, when that started to shift for me. And and while I I grew up believing the Bible was true, I didn't start really loving it until then. And, you know, I went I, I thought I would love it more later. Now, I don't know. Kind of, I mean, when I was in elementary school, yeah, I loved it then because they pretty much tell you the really cool stories. In elementary school, you know, things that really fly on a flannel graph. And uh, and then you get into junior high and I was like, well, maybe when I get into high school, I'll like it more. And then I got into high school and thought, oh, maybe when I get into college and then I become a deep thinker, you know, I'll, then I'll like it more. And then I got into college and thought, oh, I've got so much other studying and reading and all that kind of stuff. Maybe when I get out of college and I become a real live adult, uh, then I'll like it more. And then I got out of college and I didn't feel like growing up. So I became a youth pastor. And I spent six years as a youth pastor at Hope Covenant Church in Tacoma, Washington, just outside of Seattle. And it was during that time that this happened in April 18th. Earlier that week, I was having lunch with a buddy of mine who was a youth pastor in another church. And he said, there's this guy coming to our church Sunday night. I don't know what to make of it. He 
He's memorized the entire Gospel of Luke. And he gets up on stage with no sets, no props, no costumes, no other actors and actresses. And he quotes the Gospel of Luke. And while he quotes it, he kind of acts it out. Well, as you might imagine, the first thought that went through my head was, so that's a lot. (laughs) The second thought was, are people really going to listen to that for two hours? I I wasn't trying to be disrespectful or sacrilegious or anything, but, but my idea about what memorized, quoted scripture sounded like, you know, brought me back to my elementary school days where I can still vaguely remember sometime around second grade, third grade, something like that. They stood our Sunday school class up in front of big church, you know, and one at a time really frightened eight-year-olds went. John 3.16, for God's love of the world that gave his one only son who is ever believe in him shall perish by eternal life. John 3.16. Yes. Right. And then the next kid. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He gave his one only son. You know, who's seen this happen? Remember? And, and so there's this kind of disconnect for me between memorized, quoted scripture and good drama. And, uh, and so I figured if anybody could make it somewhat interesting, it'd be this guy. His name is Bruce Kuhn, and he had been in the Broadway cast of Les Mis. That's okay. And uh, <laughs> I hear that's above average. And... Uh, and so, so I went, quite honestly, with no great spiritual motivation. I went to support my buddy who was on staff at the church, and I went to see if somebody could do it. I mean, I'd never heard of anything like that. And the best way that I can describe what happened for me on April 18th, 1993, is the living word of God went from being a phrase to a reality. I saw it lived out, and I find that as I travel around the world, for most people, the living word of God is a phrase that they desperately wish was a reality. It has nothing to do with whether people believe it's true or not. Believing something's true and believing something's alive are two very different things. And so not only did I stay through the whole thing, but I ended up going up to Bruce afterwards, and I said, hey, man, they said you were going to be in Seattle from New York all week. Can I take you to lunch tomorrow? And he said, sure. And I picked him up at his hotel at noon. And dropped him back off at 9 p.m. And uh, no exaggeration. And, and this guy just talked about the Bible differently from anybody I'd ever heard before. He started saying things like, well, what if instead of memorizing this verse and this verse and this verse or studying this section and then this section and then this section, he said, what if you just took a book of the Bible or a big chunk of scripture and you just soaked in it until you knew it? You just hung out there until you knew it. And when you know it, you move on. I remember thinking, okay, my whole life I've heard about studying the Bible and memorizing verses. I've never heard anybody talk about hanging out with it or soaking in it. And so I took him up on his challenge. You know, he had done Luke. I want to do something different. So I chose Philippians. And, uh, and I, for that summer of 93, I, I read Philippians every day. I just read Philippians. The next day I read Philippians. And I, I had read Philippians before, but it had always been a four-day deal. Right? Because it's four chapters. And I remember somebody once said, you know, read a chapter a day and think about what it means and how it applies. And right? Because a chapter a day keeps the devil away. I don't know. And, uh, but, uh, but I started thinking, okay, for the first, after about two or three days, I realized that for the first time in my life, I'm reading this letter the way that you would actually read a letter. Right? I mean, 
If you got home and there was a four-page handwritten letter in your mailbox from somebody you love, who you haven't seen in a few years, and you open it up, and the first line on page one is, I thank my God every time I remember you. You know, would you read page one and go, whew, I'm spent. I better save page two for tomorrow. Right? No, you'd read the whole thing, and then you'd sit down and you'd read it again. And, and there might be later on, there might be some parts that you read specific parts. But that's not how you'd start. And so as I read it, I just started feeling differently about the Bible. I started, yes, I was asking the questions, what does this mean and how does this apply and all that. But I was also thinking about those two guys in chapter two, Timothy and Epaphroditus. They just seem like cool guys. And those two ladies in chapter four, Udiah and Syntyche, I wonder what they were arguing about. And and that church just seems to have the generosity thing down. I mean, right. You read chapter four of Philippians. (laughs) Paul's the only pastor in the history of pastors that ever told his people to stop giving. Right? Read it. It's in there. <laughs> I'm not looking for a gift. I'm amply supplied. I, I I'm, I'm guessing nobody's ever stood up here and said, you know, I know it's only week three of the month, but we're good. You know, <laughs> right? That, but that, that church just was generous and they just had something going on. And I started having all these relational thoughts as well as informational ones. And I was just having conversations with God throughout the day about, Man, what was this like? And, and I was just talking to him more regularly. And I realized that for the first time in my life, I was studying the Bible relationally, not just informationally. I was studying. I was my primary motivation for going to the word was to hang out with Jesus, not to learn about him. And in hanging out with him, I learned more than I ever had before. Because do you realize that the purpose of this book is not to give you information about God. It's not the purpose. This is the only book that's ever been written with the sole purpose of drawing you into a relationship with its author. The purpose of this book is relationship, not information. Now, is there information in there? Yes. But we need to read it with a relational mindset and a relational approach. And a lot more of that will be some of what, from a practical standpoint, will be what we look at tonight when we get back together. But I also realized as I was reading along... I got toward the end of the summer and was driving down the street and thinking through Philippians and realized I had just gone about, I don't know, three or four or five paragraphs without making a mistake. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, memorizing the verse so that I could get a star, in my, that was always super hard, right? And I now knew paragraphs and paragraphs and and I realized that I hadn't just memorized it, I had internalized it. It became a part of me. It was that summer of 93 that I stopped using the word memorization started using the word internalization because most of the time when people ask me, how do you memorize such big chunks? What they want to know is how do I get the words in the right order and how do I remember it? But the goal for me is about knowing the word, not just about knowing the words, right? And, uh, and so, so this, you know, to make a long story just a little longer, this was such a powerful experience that I decided in 94, I wanted to know the life of Jesus like this. And so I made one New Year's resolution. That was to internalize the Gospel of John, to just read the Gospel of John over and over again until I knew it. Just read it and then flip back 20, 30 pages and read it again. Flip back, read it again. So I did that for the better part of two years, actually. And little did I know that God was actually preparing me to do with the Gospel of John what Bruce had done with Luke. Now, I never had any thought that I would ever do something like that because, you know, Bruce was... 
this classically trained and had a theater degree and rose up through the ranks and got to Broadway. Then somebody hired him to do Luke and for 12 weeks. And after he did Luke for 12 weeks off Broadway, he went, this could be an awesome ministry. And then he's now done it for 20, 30 years. And he, uh, and so that was his route. My route was, I've done some youth group skits. That's what you got to work with, God. You know, that was it. That was it. I had never been in a school play, never did any training. I think I took one acting 101 class in college because it filled a requirement and didn't require a lab. So that was awesome. And uh, but other than that, nothing. But starting in March of 96, a little more than 20 years ago, I started telling the gospel of John. And it's been my passion ever since. But to me, it's a it's a launch pad for conversations about how do we move from should to want? How do we actually read it on a daily basis to enjoy it? Now, for those of you that are going, is he really going to do the Gospel of John for the next two hours? No. Well, (laughs) I'm going to actually look at a story that I thought that I knew really well. A book of the Bible that I thought I had a pretty good handle on until about 15 or so years ago when I was sitting down with my pastor in the summer, and he said, hey, this fall, I'm going to be doing a sermon series on the book of Jonah. And I would love for the first sermon to be you presenting Jonah the way that you do with the Gospel of John. And I said, yeah, that's great, Randy, but I, don't, I haven't internalized the book of Jonah. And he looked at me and he goes, dude, it's like two pages. <laughs> and so I said, well, you do it. And uh, and. Uh, <laughs> But that, that launched me into most of July and all of August of just reading Jonah over and over again. And I thought that I knew it really well, but it didn't take very long, like day one, day two, when I realized, wait a minute, there's a big chunk of this story that's left out almost every time I've ever heard it told. We all know the story of Jonah, right? I mean, Jonah was this guy. God tells him, go talk to the Ninevites. He says, no. He runs away. Big storm. Three day quiet time in the belly of a fish. Fish burps. He gets a second chance. He obeys. God saves the whole city. Right. Is that the story of Jonah? You know that story? That's 75 percent of it. That's chapters one, two and three. There's a fourth chapter to Jonah. And you're not going to find it in almost any children's Bible out there. You're not going to see it in the, in the you know, VeggieTales movie. You're not going to see it. Right? Yeah, I know you've seen it. And uh, you know, most of the times that you ever hear Jonah told, you won't hear it. You know why? Because it's super bad. It's really not very good at all. Right? The... We like we understand disobedience and we understand people running away. But when he gets it right and God saves everybody, that's the time when the credits roll. Right. That's that's how it's supposed to end. But chapter four ends with Jonah. The second primary character in the story, right? The first is always God. Second primary character in the story is Jonah. It ends with him as a whining crybaby. That's not how we usually like our movies to end. Oh, God, I don't like that you did it this way. What? The end. Right? I mean, that. <laughs> and so we leave it out. And as I soaked in the story over and over again, as a storyteller, as somebody who now that's what I do for a living, I got to tell you, I don't like chapter four. But as somebody who is just trying to follow God with my life and sometimes gets it right and more often than not messes it up, 
I love the fact that chapter 4 is in there. There's a lot of grace. There's a lot of mercy. There's a lot of God's presence in chapter 4. Storytelling is really bad in chapter 4. God's story is really good in chapter 4. <laughs> and so what I'd like to do for the next seven or eight minutes is I'd like us to hear Jonah. And then I'd like us to unpack it a little bit and look at his journey. Because while most of the time we go to Jonah and the focus is in this major theme of, of sin and disobedience and second chances and obedience. And that, that is a major theme and it should be talked about in Jonah. But today I want to look at how in each of these four chapters he goes through a stage of this journey that I think makes his story much more like yours and mine. I would really encourage you for the next seven or eight minutes not to open your Bible and follow along. I know that's the opposite of what most... I mean, I saw some of you already flipping and you know, getting your phones out. You, you, you version people. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> so... Uh, uh, but but I, I find that when people follow along, they get really, really caught up in whether I'm getting it right. right? And so I'm about to quote a book of the Bible. Are you guys okay with me missing a word or two? Her and him. All right. Well. And then after we're done, we'll open it up. And then I would highly encourage you to crack open your Bible to Jonah at that point. Father God, I pray now that the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And may all this be for your name's sake. Amen. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. But the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Well, the sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots and find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, what do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He replied, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, the God who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they said, What have you done? They knew that he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And he replied, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not. For the sea grew even wilder than before. Finally, they cried to the Lord, Oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea 
grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord God provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, O Lord, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it... (coughs) vomited Jonah onto dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. Jonah started into the city going a day's journey and he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their wicked ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord replied, Do you have any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he built himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. 
the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. The sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? And he replied, I do. I am angry enough to die. But God said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Amen? Amen. So, you wish it ended about two minutes ago, don't you? Whoa. I'll be with you in a second. So, we look at this story of this guy. And let's take a look now. Chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. And see if this, this cycle, this journey that he goes on, isn't very similar to our own. In chapter 1, chapter 1 tells the story, for those of you that don't have your Bible open in front of you now... Chapter one tells the story of from the beginning to when he gets thrown overboard. That's the story of chapter one. So all of his obedience, disobedience, his running away, the storm, all that stuff is happening in chapter one. Now, if there's anything we're going to learn from chapter one, it is that when our world is shaken, our foundation is tested. When your world is shaken... That's when your foundation is tested. Because here this boat is going down. The storm is getting worse, not better. The boat, things aren't going well there. You've got all the different sailors. It says each one's crying out to his own God. Maybe this God will save us. Maybe this God will save us. Their foundation is guesswork. Some of them, their foundation is the boat. Maybe the boat will save us. Let's get the boat a little bit lighter, and maybe we'll be able to ride this thing out, and the boat will save us. Maybe the boat could be our good foundation. Well, there's a little clue in there that maybe the boat is not your best foundation. Did you notice who it was that went to wake up Jonah and ask him to turn to prayer? Did you notice? The captain. If the captain, if you're on a ship, and the storm gets so bad that the captain leaves the helm of the ship and goes down to the basement to wake up sleeping people so you can turn to prayer? That's a bad day on a boat, people. Right? So the captain's given up on the boat. He doesn't know what his foundation is, but he wants to cover his God bases. There's a sleeping guy. Let's call on all the gods. Let's see. Then they figure out that this is Jonah's fault. They cast lots, lot falls on Jonah, and ask him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this calamity for us? What do you do? 
Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? These identity questions, these questions that we ask each other frequently when we first meet somebody. Right? Where do you come from? I come from Seattle. What do you do? I'm an author and a speaker. Right? What is your people? Well, I'm Italian, I'm Swedish, I'm Portuguese, I'm English, I'm Irish. I basically never met a menu I didn't like. That's who I am. My wife, 100% Swedish. And uh, (laughs) all these identity questions. But you notice, I believe it's right around verse 8, 9, something like that. Did you notice that he doesn't answer all their questions? His answer to the identity questions in a situation where his world is being shaken to the core His answer is whom he worships. I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, the God who made the sea and the land. That is his answer to the question, who are you? What do you do? Where do you come from? This is whom I worship. That's what you need to know about me right now. Because when my world is shaken, my foundation is tested. And the message for me every time I read chapter one of Jonah is if my foundation, if your foundation is anything other than the God who made the sea and the land, it is a foundation that will eventually fail. Even if that foundation sounds like good things. If your foundation is your family. Family is a good thing. Should you invest in your family? Absolutely. Should you trust your family? Yes, you should. If your foundation is your family, it will eventually fail. Either through tragedy, death, divorce, or old age, at some point, your family will not be what it is now. April Fool's Day this year, my dad lost his battle with cancer, or won it, depending on what your theology is. (laughs) <laughs> 74 years old. That's not old age. That's not dying of natural causes. His dad died at 94. He was supposed to live two more decades. Spend time with his grandkids. There's so much, right? If your foundation is your family, then through tragedy, death, divorce, It will fail at some point. If your foundation is your portfolio. For those of you that your foundation was your portfolio 10 years ago, 2008 was your storm. Amen. (laughs) So what happens if you're now somebody who's building your foundation again on a new portfolio? We really think in 2008 will never happen again. What if your foundation is a solid career that you've been in for a long time? Well, then ask me, what do I tell my good friend who 10 days ago was let go from a job that he thought he was going to retire in that he'd held for 24 years? What do I tell him? If your foundation is anything other than the God who made the sea and the land, it is a foundation that will fail. And Jonah learned that through the storm. Then he gets thrown overboard. And if he learned about foundation in chapter one, he learned what it takes to regain your focus in chapter two. Do you notice that prayer? Do you notice 
how different it was at the beginning and the end. How at the beginning, the current swirled about me. The engulfing waters threatened me. The seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. He's completely 100% focused on his circumstances. And it would be pretty hard not to be. I mean, he's currently being digested. Right? It'd be hard to focus on anything else. But do you realize that over the course of these three days, do you notice where he was at the end? Offering songs of thanksgiving. Recommitting himself to the task. What I have vowed, I will make good, even though he doesn't have any reason to believe he's going to get the chance. Recognizing where salvation comes from. Salvation comes from the Lord. This is a guy who is currently being digested Singing songs of thanksgiving. Hopefully they're silent in his head. I hope he didn't open his mouth. Right? Any fishermen in here? You know how bad they smell on the outside. And, uh, but how do we regain our focus? Well, this guy had a three-day quiet time imposed by God. Let me ask you, how many of you would like to hear from God? You would like to hear God speak to you and guide you. Would you like that? How many of you daily build in silence in your life? A lot fewer hands. We want to hear from God. We just don't want to listen. We want notes and we want God to shout. Because we live in a noisy world that does not honor stillness, that does not honor silence, that does not honor solitude, that does not honor quiet, that does not honor doing nothing. And yet, if we want to regain our focus, we have to remove distractions. But most of us get up in the morning and we turn on the TV, we turn on the radio, or we grab our smartphones. Right? Most recent statistics show that between 85 and 90% of people between the ages of 14 and 50 check their phone, their social media specifically, on their phone within 15 minutes of waking up. Our highest priority in this country is what your picture of your friend's breakfast looks like. Our highest priority is somebody else's pictures of their kids. Somebody else's nice little quote. That is the most important thing in the lives of 90% of the people in this room. In the first 15 minutes of waking up, our most important priority is finding out what happened on Facebook or Twitter while we slept. And if I stepped on any toes, it's completely intentional. Because we have to stop. We want to hear from God, but we never put ourselves in a position where we actively listen. I dare you to go the next two weeks and don't touch your phone for 30 to 45 minutes after waking up. Watch what happens. Walk around your house without the TV on, without the radio on. For those of you that are in that 90%, which I'm guessing is about 90% of you, The first several days will be torture. It'll be frustrating. It'll be anxiety-inducing. Because, truth be told, it will be withdrawal from an addiction. I mean, let's call it what it is. That's what it is. We want to hear from God. We just don't want to listen. And God's not in a habit of shouting. 
He was in the whisper to his prophet. He's not just going to shout to you because you don't want to turn the noise off. Got to regain our focus. But then what happens after we regain our focus? We look at chapter 3. And chapter 3 is when he gets that second chance and he obeys and God saves everybody. Right? Oh my goodness, what happens when we actually follow? If chapter 1 is about foundation, recognizing our foundation, and chapter 2 is about regaining our focus, what happens when we actually follow? Well, when we actually follow, when we actually do what God's asking us to do, He will do God stuff. Stuff that is only big enough for Him to do. Because that's what He does. He's kind of like God. Right? And here's the beautiful thing and also the painful lesson about Jonah is that we can't wait to be obedient. We can't wait until we're more gifted, more talented, more spiritual, more well-read, more whatever. Because what what we see in the third chapter of Jonah is that God uses the world's worst sermon to save 120,000 people. That's not a good sermon, right? (laughs) Anything I've ever heard, read, studied, heard people talk about preaching will tell you, go ahead and make sure that you tackle the hard passages. But when you are tackling the hard passages, at some point in there, make sure you point people toward hope, right? Point people toward Jesus, toward the life-giving indwelling of the Spirit, toward the love of the Father. Point them toward something that will bring hope in the midst of that hard lesson. Jonah, not so much. Well, good morning. Thank you for coming. Forty more days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Good night. I mean, that's, that's as bad as it gets. The only good thing about that sermon is it's short. Right? That part's fantastic. Everything else, really, really bad. But hear this clearly, friends. God is not waiting for you to be talented. He is waiting for you to be obedient. He is not waiting for you to realize your spiritual gifts. He's waiting for you to be obedient. He is not waiting for you to be more holy. He is waiting for you to be obedient. There's anything we learn from Jonah chapter 3 is that you do not have to be good to be effective. You do not have to be talented. You need to be obedient. Go to Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Apparently the message was, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. He did that, and God changed hearts. And then we see chapter 4. Ugh. Because we love that he recognizes his foundation. And we love that he regains his focus and gets on the right track. And we love that he follows and God shows up and God does something amazing. But what does chapter 4 point out? Chapter 4 points out what that, that dark place in all of us, our own fickleness. We can see God do something amazing and the next day complain. Right? That, that's the stuff we don't want to talk about. That's the stuff that is ugly about us. That's the stuff that we see in the mirror that we don't even share with anybody. Because we're afraid somebody's not going to see us as holy enough. Well, we learned from chapter 3, you don't need to be. You just need to be obedient. Chapter 4, we see this guy who's complaining. He's like, God, why did you save these people? These people are horrible. 
It wasn't that I wanted you to send somebody else. I didn't want you to send anybody. I didn't want you to save those people. I knew that you were kind. I knew that you were compassionate. But the Ninevites, really, they're horrible. They've been slaughtering us. They've been bullies forever. And you're going to save them? Ugh. Now, I know you and I, we never complain about what God does. We never complain about his timing. We never complain about the way he treats other people instead of us. Right? We never... Is it just me? Okay. But here's what I love. Here's what gives me hope in chapter 4. Where was God in the midst of his fickleness? Right there. Never left, right? There was never a point, chapter 1, 2, 3, or 4, never a point where God abandoned Jonah. Never a point where he gave up on him. Never a point in which he said, are you serious? Now, if, if I was God, I would have said, seriously, I give you a second chance. And then I did an amazing thing right in front of you using your pathetic little sermon. That's what I, and then look what I did. And now you're complaining because you're too hot. Get out of my face. Right? That would be how I would have written the story. Thank God I'm not God, right? And what does he do? Hey, Jonah, here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to help you cool down for a second, okay? And then I want to teach you something. So I'm going to take that away for a second. I'm going to make you uncomfortable again, but I want to, I want to start working on your heart. I want you to actually see people for people. I want you to see people with the eyes that I have. I want, you to, I want to still be shaping you, even in the midst of your fickleness. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not done with you. I'm not giving up on you. Everyone else might have, and you might have given up on yourself. But if there's something we learn throughout all of chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, is that there is, no matter what point in this journey you are on, whether you are in a season of recognizing your foundation, or whether you are in a season of regaining your focus, or whether you are following and you are seeing God do amazing things, or whether you are in a season of fickleness, hear this, you are not alone. He has never, ever left you, and he's not planning on it. He has not. God has never met a lost cause, including the one that looks back in your mirror, no matter what you think about yourself. Because my guess is if there was a chapter 5 to Jonah, we would see a guy recognize his foundation. And if there was a chapter 6, we would see him on that foundation regain his focus. And if there was a chapter 7, we would see him follow And God would do something amazing in and through him. But because God is good and he doesn't want us to write Jonah off, he would put in a chapter 8 and we would see his fickleness again because Jonah's just a guy. And God wouldn't leave him then and he hasn't left you now. Amen? Lord Jesus, thank you that you never left Jonah. And that you don't leave us. That with this many people in this room, there are many of us at all four of these stages right now. I pray that we would seek to meet you there. That we would be present with you. That we would turn some things off. That we would listen. That we would hear your voice. And when you speak, whether it's something big or something little, we would obey. And we would expect you to show up. And we would watch you move And in the seasons of our fickleness, I pray that we would quickly move toward our foundation. God, we thank you for Jonah. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for your life-giving word. In the beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.